The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying. Um, Partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to the Marines, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes we'll be out of it. Well some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I scratched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Cartley. We're here in the uh, Australian War Memorial with a load of noise in the background, so I hope you can hear us. Um, <laughs> but this is one of the most amazing museums uh, that, that you can see in Australia. It's uh, in terms of uh, military museums and, and war museums, um, and we're in the aircraft hall. Indeed, and 
I think the first thing we should say there is it's both a museum and a memorial, and it's an important distinction yep. we must make, so we'll just note that, um, and it does fulfil both roles. But we're here today to look very much at the aircraft in the museum segment. We're actually standing up on a, a large platform in the centre of the, uh, the museum, in the centre of the aircraft hall, very much in the middle, standing next to um, one of the uh, preserved uh, mosquitoes in Australia. We'll just run through the aircraft we can see from here uh, very quickly. Uh, to my left hand we have a Mitsubishi Zero, um, obviously needs no introduction I'm sure to our listeners. Underneath that is a, a, a P40. Running around to the other side we have a Sea Fury um, P51D, it is a P51D as Dave correctly spotted when we were looking at it earlier rather than a COC Mustang. The nose of a, um, a MiG-15 and tucked away out of our sight but we know it's there is a um, Oscar, Japanese Oscar fighter uh, wreck. Underneath our feet is uh, the Wurraway um, uh, 103, which we will return to in a moment. Dave? And right in front of us is the Mosquito, as James said, and it's a beautiful example. It's in a silver scheme, uh, I guess, is that a post-war scheme, James? I believe so. Um, this aircraft is a photo reconnaissance version and uh, used for mapping of Australia. It's representing here great what we can see, standing by the rear fuselage, by those that know their mozzies, the uh, reinforcing strake um, by the uh, the rear fuselage door on the underside. And underneath it is, has a couple of F-24 cameras, very famous uh, photo reconnaissance camera. So the Mosquito in Australia has uh, a couple of very important roles. One, obviously the wartime role, um, very much photo reconnaissance was used in the Pacific and the, Australian, um, the uh, Royal Australian Air Force Museum has a, um, a PR mosquito under rebuild at the moment. Um, and then post-war, exactly like Canada, one of the things I love is where you see parallels. Mosquitoes here and in Canada were used for mapping our vast countries. Uh, and uh, if you drive in the outback of Australia today, you may well be using maps that were originally created by mosquitoes flying over that previously uncharted territory. So it's interesting for those in older countries, uh, uh, or countries with an older uh, um, Western tradition, um, we didn't actually know what was in a lot of Australia until after World War II, and it was World War II equipment that uh, picked that up. Now, also like Canada, de Havilland made mosquitoes uh, under licence, and um, was, is this one of the Bankstown built mosquitoes? I believe it is, Dave. I'm not absolutely sure, and I should know, but uh, I, I think it is one of the Australian-built PR examples. But be that as it may, um, a, a really good point there is that the Mosquito was originally designed and built in Britain, obviously, uh, license-built in Canada and, and Australia, who were the only countries to license-build Mosquitoes as such. But I'd, I'd just like to give a little tip of the hat to the Kiwis here. Um, Dave's been the one who's picking up the Kiwi end up until now, but um, I think personally we've had one license-produced Mosquito in New Zealand and I think that's the, uh, the late production version, KA114, what a terrific effort. Absolutely. And we'll be seeing a lot more from New Zealand in the future. So New Zealand's catching up with the rest of the world on mosquito production and we're all very grateful for that. Absolutely. Can we turn to the Zero now? That's Absolutely, a, that's a yes. rather interesting aircraft, isn't it? We'll just move over to the, to, um, to the Zero here. It's hanging up. Um, some of the hanging is perhaps a little obtrusive. It's hung by the tail wheel, which stands out a little bit, but uh, otherwise pretty good. Um, this is a very original aircraft. Um, there's a fair number of Zeros surviving, nothing like the numbers of Mustangs or even Spitfires, probably in the Hurricane numbers, less than P-40s. Um, but this one's particularly significant, and the War Memorial is always keen to have aircraft with history, not just a representative example where they can. So their criteria is, is the historic aircraft. This one uh, was actually flown, it's believed, by the Japanese ace Subaru Sakai, undoubtedly the most famous and notable uh, Japanese airman to the west. Um, and uh, it actually encountered the uh, the P-51 
40 uh, underneath it which was flown during the, the same battles um, in the Pacific. I'm not absolutely familiar with the details of the battles because I should be um, but I think it's kind of cool that you've got two uh, aircraft that actually met in war and are now sitting side by side quietly at peace uh, although reminding us of the of that war. So was this over um, the, the Papua New Guinea war zone? I believe so Dave yeah. Um, I'm not uh, Everybody has their specialisation, so I, I don't tend to follow the, the conduct of war so much as the, uh, the histories of the aeroplanes. I have to put my hand up to that being my weak spot. Um, but it's great to have a zero here. And one of the things you can just see is the way the aircraft's constructed, the very light alloy construction of the zero. Um, famously, very lightly built aircraft, very like a, a sort of sports or aerobatic aircraft with armament rather than what we in the thought, West thought was appropriate for a fighter. As everybody knows, uh, the zero was very successful in the early stage of the Pacific War. It did the job and part of the job was being able to fly really long distances and then knock down um, enemy, uh, our allied aircraft when it got there or, or originally Chinese aircraft as well. Sure. Moving to the, um, uh, the P-40 underneath, this is a, this is a, a wreck rescue, uh, one of the many in if you think back to the podcast with Ian Whitney, um, he's very familiar with the history of this particular P-40. It's uh, poly, uh, written on the nose, uh, as so many of these aircraft had, and it's been presented on a sort of diorama base with uh, some of the uh, uh, the punched Marsden-type matting underneath and a couple of mannequins rearming it on the other side um, and a bit of weathering on it. One of those odd things, actually, about a museum, Dave, is that uh, as we were talking to uh, to Jamie about the Hudson in the, um, the Tyrol Centre podcast, gee, this so many podcasts that you've got to refer to uh, which is great um, he was talking about they don't want to turn out an aircraft that's been conserved or restored that looks like a, a you know a fresh kit or a factory production aircraft so they put some weathering on this so it matches into the diorama space um, but as, as, as Craig said this morning when we were chatting Craig Brankin said this morning when we were chatting to him um, it's kind of odd to have this in a Pacific diorama scene in very subdued lighting because generally the only time they had subdued lighting was the middle of the night when there was no moon um, but but it's great to have those two here and that's a really uh, neat part of it and around these aircraft for those not familiar and we will be putting pictures up there's all sorts of artifacts and uh, one of those areas that I think was really good to call out is the memorial has a phenomenal art collection both painting uh, drawing sketches and sculpture and all sorts of uh, modern uh, interpretive art not everybody's cup of tea but I think a lot of the paintings give a uh, very different view of what it was like to be there. They add to the context because they're, they're showing the scenery of where these aircraft uh, operated and, and um, you know, you, you talk about the, the darkness of the scene, but yeah. It, yeah, right next to it there's, there's what I think are armourers or, or, yep, or something. Yep. You know, those ground crew guys were working well into the, into the night anyway, so it's actually quite appropriate. It's quite possible indeed. Yeah. And I think one of the things I'd say with the artworks is they're normally painted by uh, official war artists, um, and that included New Zealanders, Australians, Canadians, British, and many others um, in that scene. So they often show things that you would not get to see with the artifact, not get to see in the newsreels or the photographs taken or in the articles or the podcasts. So it adds to the mix. And I think one of the great things about this trip that we've been doing, Dave, is that we're actually looking at there's lots of different ways of understanding what happened or, or putting yourself in the context. And yep. we were just talking just now about your experience of getting into the turret of the Tamora Hudson on a 40 to 41 degree day and just realizing personally how hot, and, I'm, and you weren't even working on it, you just got in and out, didn't you? And that That's was right. nasty. That's right. I mean, it was almost impossible to get in. It was so hot. 
Um, turning the other way. Turning the other way, we've got a big screen there that's actually showing several of these aircraft types and a few others uh, that have operated from Australia and, and up in the Pacific from our, our allied nations. I think that's about um, 8 metres across that screen. Yeah, it, yeah and it's, it's showing big. some nice big coloured and, and black and white footage of these aircraft in action during World War II and, and uh, afterwards as well. Um, one of the things you can find with the memorial is you can come here for a visit and you spend the entire time in just one hall. You can yeah. easily spend a couple of days just looking at the aircraft and the artefacts on show here. Yeah, and uh, and then over to the uh, the other side of the hall here, we've got two very beautiful aircraft, and one of them uh, is quite a large fighter, and that's the, the post-war Sea Fury. Yeah, a personal favourite. I've always been a big Sea Fury fan. Um, this example is very nicely presented. Uh, it does look brand new. Uh, most carrier aircraft looked a lot more uh, tired after uh, even just a few days and certainly months at sea. Um, this one's got a, a beautiful, uh, you know, the red spinner, um, and uh, it's presented on though as though it's on a carrier deck. One of my little quibbles with the museum, and it's easy to it's easy to criticise, and, and uh, I occasionally do do a bit too much of that. But one of the things they've positioned it, and they've just positioned it right up against the wall, and they've taken the hook off the the hook and, um, and, and its mounting. So you don't see the hook, and it just seems to me they could have moved it a few feet forward, but there's a doorway I think they have to allow access. It's a pity because, of course, the hook is a critical bit of what makes a naval, naval aircraft of that era. Uh, so that's a minor thing. It's beautifully presented. They've got a, a photograph of a, uh, a deck landing officer batting with his, with his sort of um, paddles, uh, batting another aircraft in uh, in the background to it. And there's a lot of context. You, you might be able to hear, in fact, some of the soundscapes of uh, machine gun fire and people talking in the background uh, there. Yeah, actually, we should point out a lot of the noise that we can hear in the background um, to this that, that we'll be recording during the podcast is actually recorded uh, soundscape, as James says, and it's not all all people, but there's a lot of people in the museum as well. It's a very busy museum. I think you said it was uh, one of the biggest attractions in Australia for, yeah, for tourists. And you've got to get your little um, caveat words in the sentence correct, and I, I don't know them, but uh, certainly one of the top attractions in Australia up there with Uluru, Airs, Rock to Many, uh, Kakadu, and... and, and um, all the other great places that people know of in Australia. It has a phenomenal number of people who come a long way uh, to see this. Dave's probably one of the shortest distance visitors coming from only New Zealand. Yeah. Um, Lots of school groups coming too, yes. too as well, which is really good to see that the uh, young people are getting to see this uh, history. Yeah, and, and we'll be looking a little later, but I'll bring that in at that point, uh, Dave, because I think it's a really good point. Um, we have the striking by night sound and light show with the Lancaster. It's one of my favourite things in the world in, of, of aviation preservation presentation. It's unique. Um, there are similar things but nothing quite like it. And they often have school groups in there and they start off with, you know, school kids and they're giggling and chatting and checking the phones and a bit of, bit of talking. The thing starts and that dies away quite naturally, quite quickly. They start to pay attention to it. And I've listened and watched this show a number of times and almost always at the end of it you can hear a pin drop. It absolutely captures people's attention. So um, the flip side to my little light criticism of the museum earlier is when they do something well, they do it really, really well. Yeah. Best in the world. None of this. In my uh, opinion from having a look around here uh, yesterday and this morning is this place does everything pretty much really well. It's a, it's a very, very nicely laid out, yeah. well kept um, very good museum. I've, I've got a lot of praise for it. Absolutely, and I agree with you, David. It's been fun looking at it, at it afresh through your eyes um, and picking up some of the, your initial reactions, which, you know, I've been here a lot and it's easy to sort of get you familiar with. It becomes like a, <laughs> a historian's second home, and that's one of the things they want it to be. It's an important archive here, but that's been great. And I think one of the points you made, which I'd like to, to repeat, is that it's very consistent throughout. It's been developed in stages. Um, each uh, display has been an addition to a previous one, um, and 
and uh, but throughout it looks consistent. It's it's um, yeah. uh, the same th same feel throughout. That's actually very difficult for museums to do as fashions change and budgets uh, you know bulge and shrink and well, shrink and shrink generally, don't they? Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's enough of our opinions. Let's have a look at the next aircraft. Um, well, the next aircraft here is um, is the Mustang, which uh, we talked about earlier. It's a P51D, and I didn't realise until yesterday when you actually said, James, that. The, um, all of the aircraft, all the all the Mustang aircraft used by the Royal Australian Air Force during World War II were actually American built. Yes. I always thought that you had the production going here um, during the war, and uh, I, I mean I don't really know that much about it. So, um, and it's uh, it's interesting that you had the American built ones, and then later built your own for post-war. Yeah, service. a little bit of Australian propaganda there, Dave. We kind mm. of every, we, we know we built them. We like to say they're the better ones because they were post-war. They weren't built in a hurry for the war. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we like everybody to think actually we took the Australian built ones to war in in, uh, in the Mediterranean and in the Pacific. But no, all of the uh, all of the P-51Ds uh, were American built. And again, little point here: P-51D is the U.S. Army Air Force designation for the types, American designation, not an Australian one, but these were built as P-51Ds and we call them that. The Australian ones were always a CAC Mark you know, 18, yeah. 21, whatever, but CAC Mustang and should never be referred to as a P-51D. They are not. Um, they were not any part of the US military. Um, they look exactly the same. They are the same aircraft structurally, but they were built, the CAC ones were built in Australia. But this is a, an American one, so actually rare in Australia. The, the majority of the Aussie ones, as you'd expect, are uh, the ones that we built post-war. We did take them to war um, uh, in a couple of combats and so on post-World War II, but the majority of the Australian ones never saw action. So and that's one so of the reason there's, there's so many of them about compared to the North American uh, built ones. So these, these ones here, um, the, the actual American built P-51Ds, yeah. they would have been under Lend-Lease? Or uh, lease land. Yeah, exactly. Um, part of that, and um, so a lot of those were either returned or scrapped, scrapped or lost. Yeah. Yeah. Under under the uh, agreement of yeah. um, uh, the deal, and and so the CAC Mustangs would have been the ones that the Australian squadron um, took up to Korea, I guess. That's right, and they were ours, very much yeah. ours. So they um, did see some action, but not in World War Two. Not in World War Two. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. You've got to be very careful when you're, as you can probably hear, a school group going past. Well, Dave and I are looking down here, they're probably about 10 years old, uh, passing below us here, and um, usual kind of, you know, joshing with your mates and the rest, but they're looking and paying attention, and I think um, one of the things I've learned with working with school groups as a guide is uh, there's a lot going on under the surface. It's easy to see how kids uh, kids react and, and, and misread that level of engagement, and you notice them looking at their phones or talking to their mates, but we can see here, you know, kids paying a lot more, there's, there's a a few lot more who attention. Take, there's a few who take more more attention than uh, than others too, and uh, they'll, oh, they'll grow up to be the aviation fans, I reckon. Uh, well, I've, I've taken some school groups, Dave, and there's been kids who know more about some of the aeroplanes than I do, and I've had a 40-odd yeah. year start on them, so that's yeah. pretty good too. Yeah, but just one last point about the, the Mustang um, that we're looking at here. It's uh, in natural metal, and what you're actually looking at is the genuine natural metal. It's one of the things the memorial does is they try and get it right as far as is possible. They make mistakes like everybody, but there's no compromise as far as they can manage for airworthiness, obviously, that nothing here will be ever flown again. It's a permanent static display for long-term preservation. They're pleased other people fly stuff, but that's not their mandate. 
Um, and here, what you're looking at is a natural metal fuselage and the painted wing that is often overlooked as how these aircraft were sent into combat. Yep. Um, the earlier Mustangs, of course, had camouflage, but once they went to natural metal, it was natural metal fuselage and then a surfacing on the wing because that laminar flow needed to have a certain amount of filler and correction there, so you couldn't just polish it or have it clean. Yep. And they weren't highly polished, all those lovely warbirds with the high polish. Yep, that's nice, it's your aeroplane, but it is not representative of wartime aircraft at all. Um, and the last point about that is it's got its uh, six 50 caliber machine guns in the wings, the bomb, 500 pound bomb racks, but next to those is the, uh, the Havar rockets used uh, mostly post-war, familiar from a lot of those rocket strikes. It's got six of those sitting under the, under the wings. So where did Australia use the World War II Mustangs? Were they up in Borneo? Or? Um, no, we used um, the majority of them were three squadron in, in uh, Italian campaign, so that sort of links ah, in with your New Zealand right. um, experience. Uh, New Zealand is in Italy. Um, and uh, those were in camouflage, and the uh, Judy Pay's uh, CAC built Mustang is actually representing an American built P 51 in those three squadron uh, Italian campaign colours. That was the hard yakka, the hard battling for the Australian squadrons. The very end of the war, we had a couple of Australian units using them, um, but uh, um, by that stage of the war, there wasn't a huge amount of air combat available for the Australian squadrons, and infamously, MacArthur wanted, didn't want the British Commonwealth units getting the really interesting stuff for the PR. Maybe some might think it's unfair on uh, MacArthur, I don't. I think he was very much uh, American uh, biased, um, the evidence that says so, and so he made, made sure that uh, um, a lot of the work that our guys in New Zealanders and the British were doing was very much second rank, not the, not the aerial combat and some of the really nasty ground attack stuff. But there's some great photographs of um, uh, RAAF uh, P-51s in uh, flying over the waters of the Pacific with the, with the, uh, the two-colour roundel as this aircraft in front of us is painted. Right. Um, but you're right, Dave, that talking about Korea and what we can see immediately below it, it's mounted up on a box. Um, below it is the front end of a MiG-15, another aircraft I hope needs no real introduction to our, uh, our listeners. The great adversary uh, of the 1950s. Indeed, and uh, they, uh, they walked all over us uh, with our piston-powered uh, aircraft, notwithstanding the uh, alleged or complicated uh, sea fury victory by the Royal Navy in, in Korea. Um, and it's great to have that on show, because it's also very important about a, uh, well, generations of jet fighters thing is a, a real made-up thing but it's uh, it's one of the it's one of the first generations the Russians had some early types but they got the second round of development was the MiG-15 which is one of the truly great combat aircraft of all time swept wing heavily armed maneuverable robust all ticked all it's a you know the uh, the T-34 tank of the of the air and it really showed us that the communists uh, the, the, the USSR could produce a, a thunderingly good aircraft with famously and I know everybody's thinking this right now a British designed engine um, and, uh, and they got that into production but they made, made that engine and that aircraft uh, combination work better than anything we produced at the same time. Yeah. So, just, yeah. like, just like the Australians produced the uh, amazing Sabre with the British engine as well and that, that was around about the same era. My dear Canadian friends, the best model Sabre, not the, none of those um, cheap North American versions that you and uh, uh, talk about with your American friends. Sorry, <coughs> apologies there, yes, uh, the, the CAC Sabre with, with the Avon engine and the uh, a rather large cannon. We can't see from up here, but we know, uh, really I think uh, there's two more aircraft we, we'll talk about. Um, one of them is a, a great little display, and again I like the diversity the, news, the memorial captures here, that they 
um, make sure they, they try and look at all the bases so we have aircraft in different roles and aircraft in different states and this one is the Oscar Japanese Oscar um, uh, fighter and what they've got is the front end which is the sort of engine and uh, ancillaries and then the Oscar is built with a center section and a wing uh, chunk um, that's actually in the trawl center we were looking at it yesterday yep. and um, then the, the back end the rear fuselage and empennage um, and they've got the front and back with the Huge, huge, thank you, bless you, and again, share all. Um, uh, they've got a um, huge holes cut in that aircraft because it was on the Pacific Islands and some of the locals are going, hey, this, this metal's pretty useful, and they go at it with a can opener if they were lucky, or with a knife or you know some other tool to rip out bits of that metal. So actually the framework's there, but there's these huge panels taken away. And they've lit it, lit it really interestingly, so it's actually like a sculpture. So, so this um, this aircraft you say is the Oscar. It's the uh, Nakajima Hayabusa uh, in Japanese. And, uh, AI forty three. Yep. And uh, that was the standard fighter for the uh, Japanese army, wasn't it? Yes. And uh, infamously always known as a zero because all Japanese fighters were zeros. It looks similar to a zero in the air. Certainly in air combat, I'd be cheerfully identifying a zero if I thought I was looking at that. But yep, it was one of the things we often overlook is the Japanese operated with an army air force and a naval air arm who tended to operate independently of each other, um, but we were actually fighting two services rather than one. And they weren't, you know, they both were huge. Um, yeah. They were pretty much equal in terms of what we faced from the Japanese. And, but it's important for us, because again, we tend to forget that their approach was different. Australia New Zealand never had um, naval um, uh, air arms as such in, in World War II in the way the Japanese Navy had a huge air arms, effectively a, an independent air force. Um, so most of our air arm was, was the straight air force as, as went elsewhere. And as we know, the Americans had, of course, the uh, US Army Air Force through the Pacific War, which was the Air Corps, after 1947 US, uh, US Air Force, um, US Naval, U.S. Navy's uh, air element, and of course the U.S. Marine Corps um, had a, had an element as well. So, um, although the, the Marine Corps and Navy were, were combined, so when you get beyond the actual uh, equipment, who was operating is an important bit. But, but the really important thing about the Oscar itself is that it was as much a capable fighter as as the um, Mitsubishi Zero that the uh, the Navy um, operated. And uh, the pilots who come up against them had just as much of a hard time um, yeah, in, in yeah. the air. Uh, you know, the, the pilots were as well trained as the Navy guys, and um, the, you know they could they could cause you just as much of a bad day as a zero could. I'd agree with all of that, Dave. That's a very good point, and it was built to very similar sort of principles, although the range and obviously no carrier landing requirement there. Um, but an interesting, just to pluck out an element you said there about training. The Japanese Navy was, and a big generalisation, a lot of exceptions, and, and the historians of the Japanese element of World War II will disagree with the detail here, but broad brushstroke for our, our general listener is that the Japanese Navy was seen as the aristocracy's force, and the Army was very much the peasant force. Uh, that's, that's complicated. So the training in the Navy was to people with a better education, and often better training. Harsh, the, ja the way the Japanese treated their own airmen and, and, and support crew is shocking to Western, you know, we know very well of the atrocities committed against uh, allied uh, people, but the way that the Japanese treated their own people was pretty pretty horrendous when you read about it. Um, we wrote a book um, on, on the kamikaze, uh, or, uh, edited and proved a book on the kamikaze, and I have to say it was one of the most depressing jobs I've ever had to do. Not because of the results of the kamikaze, but how those people were indoctrinated and mistreated by their own country. Appalling, appalling stuff. Yeah. 
Um, but to pick up on the on the Oscar that could be a zero, underneath our feet below us, um, we have one of Australia's most important aircraft, which is Archer's Wurraway, in quotes. That's the uh, the, uh, the Wurraway, the only Wurraway to actually shoot down uh, a Japanese aircraft. Identified at the time as a Mitsubishi Zero, but we know it was an Oscar. Um, and that was actually um, flown by uh, Archer, who took a, saw an aircraft below him, uh, enemy aircraft he was sure, and uh, he uh, he approached it from the front three-quarter attack uh, with his two, uh, two Vickers 303 machine guns, took a deflection shot, very tricky shot, hit it, the other pilot was probably not really paying attention at the time, and shot it down into the, uh, the, the shallows. The Australian Army guys went and found the aircraft, no doubt about that victory at all. So we have a couple of, Australia loves oddities, we've seen a, a crew oddities whatever we do, and the oddity with, um, with uh, our combat aircraft was that the, um, the CAC Wurraway and the CAC Boomerang between them racked up one aerial kill. The Boomerang, designed as a fighter, never ever shot down a single enemy aircraft played an important role in an army co-op, and I'm sure Dave will come back to that with, with in a moment. But the uh, the Wurraway, which was used in the really dark, tough days, it's it's basically an mem early member of the T6 family used in frontline combat against the Japanese, and that's a definition of um, tough situations and brave men with inade inadequate equipment, I think. Um, but the boomerang was designed afterwards, as we've touched on in other podcasts, uh, as a fighter, but used for um, for um, uh, uh, ground support. And I think you've got a bit to say about that, Dave. Yeah, well, the uh, the boomerang squadrons uh, operated in very close cooperation with the Royal New Zealand Air Force's Corsair squadrons, marking their targets in the jungle around Bougainville and some of the other islands. And um, you know, they they were they were very very important for the, for the uh, for the the RNZF because uh, the army would find a target, the, yep. the, the, the Australian army that is, and the, um, they'd call in the boomerangs who'd mark the target just ahead of the Corsairs who'd then come in and bomb the crap out of the target um, in the dive bomber role. And again, that's uh, you've got a fighter, um, a designed fighter marking the target and then you've got a designed fighter bombing the target. So it's, it's an interesting combination there. And um, the uh, the Kiwis used to call them the Smoky Joe. Uh-huh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, because they'd presumably uh, be dropping smoke markers. They'd, they'd mark with, with smoke markers, yep. yeah. And uh, yeah, they, 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 a lot of the Kiwi pilots I've, um, I've talked with uh, have a lot of respect for those guys. So. Sadly, we, we, we hope to maybe get a boomerang pilot in our uh, veteran series, but uh, there's very few to almost none of those guys left around today, which is which is a thing, because I know you wanted to, to meet someone who's yeah. at the other end of the Smokey Joe thing. And one of the great things about this trip is we keep rediscovering Anzac Connection. I hope as people are listening outside Australia and New Zealand would realise there's a lot of uh, mutual banter back and forth or joking back and forth between Australia and New Zealand, but it, we've always had a very, very close relationship between the two countries. And uh, so that, that relationship between the Australian Boomerang pilots and the New Zealand Corsair pilots is a classic example of an ANZAC tradition, although it wasn't actually ANZAC-type units, because ANZAC really only stands for the First World War units, doesn't it, Dave? Well, not really, because... Oh, OK. No, I, I, well, maybe from the Australian point of view, but I know that um, there, there have been other link-ups where they've, they haven't specifically called it ANZAC, because it's not necessarily the army, well, the, the or, term and it's, for not, and it's, for and it's definitely are. not a core. Yeah. But but that that actual Anzac spirit. Um, oh, Anzac of, spirit. Yeah, of, of, the, of the cooperation um, between yeah. two units as basically operating as one unit has happened before. Uh, oh, that's happened no, no. since. So. I'd agree with that. What I'm saying, um, just to clarify, there is that Anzac correctly means Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. That's oh, what Anzac stands yeah, for. That, and that was for a First World War formation. Yeah. And, and, a, and a corps is actually 
a unit uh, in the army uh, as part of yeah as part of the structure. But Dave's quite right to pick up that since then ANZAC has become a, a symbol rather than a specific technical term like a 14th Army or something like that, which yeah. is what it originally and, and started out with. And as we know, on this side of the Tasman, on the Australian side, um, often ANZAC just means Australian Army because most people don't even realise that there's an NZ in the middle of it. So. Yeah, I'd like to apologise to our Kiwi listeners as an Australian for that. It's a bad habit that Australians have. I've fallen into it myself on occasion, um, and it's very easy to stand here, wherever here is, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, America, Japan, and think, well, this is the world from my perspective, and it's the correct world. And one of the things I hope people listening will take away from this podcast series is that we're trying to look at it, and I'm personally on a global basis, bringing in other points of view. Dave's been really good at doing that as well, and also reminding me of some of the Kiwi elements here as uh, as we do this kind of, you know, coming back to where we started this bit, the Anzac tradition. Yeah. Um, and I know, that, you know, there's other great links uh, across the sea, obviously America and, and Britain with what's known always as, as uh, the uh, the special relationship, uh, yep. one of those terms. Uh, Canada with Britain, of course, is another very strong one, and us with Canada. And again, a little display, uh, we can come back to where we're standing here, is they've got an Anson nose in another corner. We didn't mention this earlier. Right. But that Anson nose symbolises the training that Australians and New Zealanders and Rhodesians and South Africans and Britons and Canadians had in Canada with the what was variously known as the Empire Air Training Scheme um, or the British Air Commonwealth Training Plan. It depends again where you're standing, which term you use yeah. or which acronym you use. But the point is um, thousands of, of New Zealanders and Australians shipped, were shipped to Canada from down under where they undertook training um, and they became in mostly the core of, the, of Bomber Command, although many went on to other units yep, as well. Yep, exactly. many all of them the, all the other RAF units as well. Yeah. And, a, and another little piece that often gets overlooked with the Empire Air Training Scheme, or as the Canadians like to call it, the British Commonwealth BT Air Training DPAC, Plan. Yes. Um, the, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Uh, the um, a lot of the, a, 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 quite a significant number of the instructors, particularly um, in the pre-December 1941 era, were uh, American pilots who were civilians. Um, they came up, Indeed. they came up from um, down in America and and joined in because they knew that uh, a they could get some good money through it, but also b there was the um, there, there was the importance of uh, of what they were doing. Uh, a lot of even though America was neutral, they yes. they, they actually saw. That what the, what, the, the what the Allies were already doing in, in Europe was uh, quite an important task. So you know a lot of those Americans do tend to get a little bit overlooked, but you know they instructed a lot of those guys. They trained a lot of those guys in both uh, flying training and things like air gunnery and navigation and all that sort of thing. So. Radio. Yep, absolutely. Mm. Really good point there, Dave. Thanks for that. And just to build on that as well, um, is there were actually uh, training schools in America, in Texas, for um, uh, British Commonwealth uh, crews and so on. Oh, absolutely. Pre, that came, that pre, came along. Uh, pre, they came along a little bit later than the than, than the plan or, or the uh, EAT. But, but pre the US entry into World yeah, War II. Exactly. So and along the theme you're talking about there, Dave. And in fact, a, a third of the uh, a third of all the, the people who trained in, in the um, Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm actually trained in, in America, and that started in June 1941. So that's you know six months before uh, America entered the war. But it was one of the deals that they set up, and they went through many different um, training schools there, particularly for fighters and bombers. Indeed, and I think a little point in what you've just said, really good points there, Dave, but one, one I'd like to pluck out there is that we, we so easily talk about six months before they entered the war, and that's absolutely true, but they didn't know that. It's so important. No, they didn't. No, they had, uh, they had no idea. Wrong. No, I'm not saying... That, but no, the, 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 the actual... Um, the, the plan was set up because Britain really needed the help. 
Yeah, I'm not on, what I'm talking about is historiography here. What I'm saying is that we so easily think of what came next because we know that, but they didn't know that. They did not know that the war would start with an attack on Pearl Harbor. They, the, there was a very real possibility that America could have stayed neutral throughout the war, and this kind of support might have been the main thrust of American support, along with munitions. Um, Lend-lease could never have happened. And again, it's a really important point I'd like to sort of pluck out in these discussions, is that we so often look with hindsight, we don't even catch ourselves doing it, and we're going, oh, well, you know, they did this at this point. I'm not saying that's what you said, Dave, because you, you know this as well as I do, but it's important to pick it up. Um, that they didn't know they were entering a five-year war, for instance. You know, um, if they did, it would have been so much easier to budget for. Oh, we need this so much for 1944 and 1946 is going to be reconstruction. Um, and it's an important problem we have here is that it also ties in with we have been studying these aircraft for as many decades as years they fought for. We're on a 10, 10 to 1 basis. You know, yeah. most of these aircraft were in service or used at maximum four years of the war um, and we personally I've been starting these for 40 years and, and Dave you would be in the same sort of bracket and so we've just by sheer time learnt so much more than people at the time could have been aware of never mind secrecy and, and so on I think those layers of understanding one of the new things a memorial is good at is making you look at your assumptions and what you think you know and so on yeah absolutely absolutely uh, and you know, I, did, I didn't mean to say that you know that what you're saying there. I, I, I wasn't saying that the Americans knew there was a war coming because, as you say, they nobody, didn't. They, they, they did. at that time. And it was it's really interesting because Churchill may, managed to get around the same time as that plan was set up with the U.S. Navy to train pilots and and um, other aircrew. Yeah. Um, they, they they also managed to get 50 old ships out of the Americans. Yes, famously. And yes, really, yes. if they hadn't done that, the Battle of Atlantic would have been lost. So, All of these so America would never have come into the war probably if that had happened because the Allies would have collapsed yep. and there would have been really nothing, that, in terms of the European war, yeah. there, there would have been nothing to actually really do. It would have been well, a whole different scenario. It would have been a whole different scenario. We're wandering, wandering into what uh, uh, qualified historians call you know, the dangers of what ifs, as it mm. were. Um, it's important to be aware of these, but you can once you start going, and then this, and then this, as we're starting to do here, it gets very dangerous. But a point, again there, Dave, really good thinking stuff here, is that, of course, the European war was probably going to be won on the Eastern Front. It was won on the Eastern Front, even with all the effort we made um, in the West. And I'm looking at the MiG-15 while I'm, I'm looking at this. And Uncle Joe Stalin was our mate, our, uh, our ally, um, yeah. from 1941 till 1945. And then it all flipped over. And it's so important for that we remember those sort of elements of how allies and enemies change as, but again, as time goes on. You're right. But again, regardless of that, in terms of that connection between the British forces and, and the American uh, uh, training and, and, and also production. Um, we're looking right here at a, at a uh, Mustang, yes. and 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 we and on the other side of the hall here is a, is a Kitty Hawk. And the British were buying those um, types of aircraft yep. long before America even knew it was going, getting into the war again. So well, it's just a you, you could just talk about it for o over <coughs> and over um, for how much America actually was contributing to the war with, without actually being in the war and yep. being a neutral country. It's really an, an interesting point. And you know, as I said. There was those guys who went up to Canada and were, yep. were training pilots, and, and there was all sorts of contributions. And volunteers and of Americans who were, quote, Canadian, um, unquote, um, for actual combat roles uh, very early on, yep. um, and, and many, many others. And, you know, what's been, 
I keep saying great things about this podcast series. There has been so many great things about this podcast series for us. We've still got a bit to go. Um, but one of the great things I think is that Dave and I are getting, we're, we're getting to work off each other and challenge our assumptions and, and, and capitalise on each other's knowledge or each other's take on something. And I, I think, Dave, I've certainly enjoyed this whole process. Um, you've made me stop and think about things I've cheerfully cruised past quite a few times. Um, and I hope we, you know the same there. And you're bringing a huge amount of different knowledge to mine. Um, we, we're both kind of keen in our areas and I think other people have said expert in areas too, which is very nice to hear. Um, but able to complement each other has been a, a terrific experience. Yeah, and uh, just I just want to go back on something else. We're talking about the mm. um, the ANZAC cooperation yes. um, in World War Two. Um, as we said, right below us uh, here in this hall is the uh, Wirraway. Yes. And a lot of the Royal New Zealand Air Force pilots who were training up in early 1941. Um, who, they were being posted up to Singapore because we had a base there, yeah. which was pre-Pacific War. Yep. And uh, these guys were training in New Zealand on wildebeests and, and tiger moths, and uh, you know, really. I was wondering how you're going to get a wildebeest into this hall, but you've done it, Dave. Yeah, we. I mean, they haven't got one, so they are lacking it. It's shocking. Uh, it's yeah. shocking. We really yeah. have a big oversight here. But anyway, the story is, um, you know, these guys were literally training on tiger moths and then wildebeests, and. Um, they had no monoplane experience, they had no retractable undercarriage experience, they had no fast plane experience. No. And so these guys arriving in, uh, in Singapore were being posted, the, the ones that were going to go to the uh, fighter squadrons, the flying buffaloes or hurricanes or whatever they were going to go on to, yep. um, they were being posted to number 21 squadron Royal Australian Air Force which was posted up there. Right. Um, and you know I've actually talked with a, a few of the guys who went through um, doing that almost an operational training course with the squadron it was basically an on-the-job training before they got onto their buffalo squadrons and um, one in particular that sticks in my mind is um, he was on that uh, Wirraway squadron yep. uh, when the Japanese started attacking Singapore and he was on a training flight um, with no guns and uh, well, no ammunition I should no say ammunition, no, uh, no ammunition and uh, he um, he suddenly found a zero was chasing him and he was reasonably comfortable with the aircraft, but he hadn't really been on it that long, and uh, started doing some manoeuvring to uh, to outfly the guns of the Zero, Lone Zero, I should say, too, which is uh, you know quite a quite a feat in itself. Absolutely. And, and apparently the uh, the Japanese pilot fired off all of his ammunition. He thinks he must have run out of ammunition, um, and then uh, decided that you know he obviously liked the cut of uh, cut of his jib. And his, and his flying because he actually flew a zero up beside him, gave him a big cheery wave and a smile, and uh, then peeled off and went home. And and that's a really interesting um, little story that probably isn't even known in Australia because it was a New Zealand pilot in an Australian air aircraft that he actually outflew the zero's guns. It's fascinating, Dave. That's a great example of what, how this series has worked for us. You're picking that up and bringing it to attention. I think everybody who's read their Commando comics knows those kind of stories, and it's really easy to believe that their Commando comic stories but only. The, but it actually but they happened, did happen, yeah. yeah. And others, other examples of that have happened as, as well. Um, moving on again, uh, terrific stuff. Um, while we've been standing here, I've been doing one of the things that's great to do in a museum that most people don't do, and that's watch other people's reactions. And it's very informative, and, and we're standing up here looking down at the, uh, the nose of the, the MiG, and as we've been talking, and, and we were talking a minute or two ago about the school group, and as Dave was backing up here, the most of the group were trundling past at, at the rate they go. Yep. 
teacher sort of trying to wrangle them along and uh, a bit of chat, a bit of looking around, more looking around than you might. I think this low lighting stuff actually attracts people's attentions to the artifacts. Yes. Um, and uh, at the end of the group, two or three of the kids and one of the teachers stopped and had a really good look into the nose of the MIG and uh, one of them touched it, which is probably not what's intended, but you can. Um, it's within reach. And um, who knows, maybe one of those kids will go, actually, you know, aviation is a... Aviation engineering is a career for me because you don't know where that spark comes, but yeah. I, I'm absolutely sure of the thousands of school children I've now uh, taken through on, on tours at museums or talked to, some of those guys have gone on to, uh, to greater things in, in aviation, which is a terrific thing. And that's the thing about a museum is it helps with people to understand how things work and yeah. or how they used to work. And, uh, you know, as Andy Bishop was saying uh, just the other day to us in another podcast, that um, it's really good to have those cutaway engines so people can understand how... Uh, you know the airflow goes through a jet engine and things like that and, yeah, and that, that's the sort of thing that inspires kids uh, and, and younger people um, to maybe perhaps seek further information and absolutely and, 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 yeah. and actually uh, suddenly turn up at an airfield and start volunteering and uh, and next thing you know they're another person in the in the warbird community or in, yeah. or in just aviation well I mean we're thinking here perhaps of Bevan who Bevan Jews who we interviewed in one of the one of the others other podcasts yep. absolutely I think it's really important and so again museums are not boxes for old stuff they are but they are also boxes for the future we build yep. out from museums yep. people learn from museums and if you're not supporting a museum if you're not involved uh, or using them and I'm not saying you know you must go to museums I think you should but not they're not for everyone but if you do you'll encounter stuff that you can't encounter anywhere else yep. and uh, and just to pick up on, on a couple of points you're making um, there, Dave, some of the stuff that really sticks with you is not the aircraft. And there's two items I'd like to bring to your attention here um, we've had a quick look at. You're talking about the early days of the Pacific War and the, and the guys being attacked in Wurraways. And, you know, often they didn't have working guns, they didn't have ammunition. That was actually pretty much normal. The yep. Buffaloes, uh, not a very uh, effective fighter, but made almost completely useless by problems with the gun mounts and, and all sorts of technical issues that hadn't been sorted out. The aircraft were, weren't ready for combat. Um, there's a famous telegram of um, Mortiaris te salutimus, um, and they have a copy of that telegram that the flimsy received in Australia on, a, on display in a minimal lighting box here. Um, you, you don't, the light only comes up when you approach it. Um, and that was, that was sent by um, Wing Commander LaRue when he said uh, requesting fighters from Australia for the Japanese attack. And Australia said, and it was an absolute fact, regret inability to, to send fighters. We did not have fighter aircraft in Australia um, and we couldn't supply them and that's how much we'd and the reason for that was that we'd sent all of our resources to Britain yep. we've not been able to set up uh, production early enough in Australia the best we had was the Wurraway which was everyone would agree inadequate for combat um, and uh, he sent back the, uh, the the telegram to Australia saying we uh, the uh, Roman gladiators who are about to die salute you um, classical education. Nowadays it would be a reference to Star Wars. Then it was a reference to the classics yeah. and um, because that was the language those guys talked in classical education the standard in Australian and British schools um, and of course uh, he survived in the irony of ironies um, and uh, ever since then those back in Australia as the story goes maybe it's unfair I'll tell the story um, uh, were not very happy about continuing his career at a high rate because he'd, he'd told these guys where they got off and uh, right. that was held against him for a long time. Great pilot, uh, great uh, great uh, squadron commander and, uh, and he spoke for his men which uh, a lot of guys in the front didn't get to do. 
Um, I'm jumping a, a bit further again, one of the other artefacts they hear is an ordinary looking leather, I think canvas actually, flying helmet. Um, and that belongs to a chap called Len Waters. So far, so ordinary. But Len Waters was the only known Aboriginal fighter pilot uh, in the Australian service in World War II. To have become a fighter pilot as an Aboriginal Australian, or as we now uh, correctly are asked to, to say, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, Len was an Aboriginal um, uh, man, was an incredible achievement. And the, the, the problem still uh, to transcend the expectations and the, and the limitations of, of Aboriginal communities, even down to today, is sometimes uh, hor horrifying, frankly. Um, but all credit to Len, he got, um, uh, his, his P-40 was called Black Magic, and uh, the aeroplane may have been called Black Magic, but he was certainly Black Magic himself. Right. Um, and that's great to, to see, but one of the little riffs on that is when that, um, that helmet was uh, brought in and put on display at the museum, he would be regarded as, as the, um, the only um, Aboriginal pilot um, the Australians had. But nowadays there's a lot more recognition of uh, racial diversity in Australia. A lot more people are looking and claiming or, or allocating um, Aboriginal heritage to people who, for good reason, frankly, uh, would have hidden that at the time. Got to be careful because sometimes you can be wrong there or people would not identify, you know, Speaking personally, I'm an Australian citizen, always been Australian, but people always think I'm a Pom because of the funny accent. Um, and I do resent it when someone thinks I'm British because that's not who I am. So you've got to be real careful about how you think about somebody else or say they belong to this group or that group when they didn't identify that way. But it's good we're re-evaluating our, uh, our um, uh, people who served, and many of them in really difficult conditions, some of those difficulties being the culture they came from and, and how they were treated within their own country. Yeah, and it's interesting to compare to um, with our own culture New Zealand and uh, yeah. it, it's it's great that we actually did have no sort of well I mean there would have been there, probably some prejudices there from some people but we, we actually had many Maori air crew members and and pilots and fighter pilots and one of them who stands out we were talking about the uh, the Japanese invasion of Singapore one of the uh, pilots who did very well there was Bert Whippity who was a Maori pilot uh -huh. um, and you know he, he was flying buffaloes he, and we actually did and it's incredible, but some there were some successful buffalo pilots. They were um, and, up and there, not and just the Finns, as is famous. Yes. Yeah, and I mean the, the the one that stands out, of course, is uh, Jeff Fiskin, who was yes. our, our top Pacific ace. But he he shot down six aircraft in, in buffaloes before he went on to the Kitty Hawks, and uh, he he particularly said to me that the buffalo was the best aircraft he ever flew. That's very interesting, yeah. Dave. Yeah, and again, that really brings up another point that I. Uh, often end up talking to people about which is that you end up with playing you know, what we call in, 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 in some cultures top trumps with aeroplanes oh this one's five five kilometers an hour five miles an hour faster than that one therefore it's superior in this regime well that's the book figures you know a well-maintained one uh, versus a badly maintained one could be a variation of 20 miles or kilometers an hour very easily um, and I am using those interchangeably because the actual numbers are not really important. The critical difference with these aircraft was the quality of the pilot. And the quality yeah. of the pilot was often their health, often overlooked. In the Pacific, staying healthy uh, was very hard. Um, their, how tired they were. Um, and then the more obvious things like uh, their training, uh, their morale, a very amorphous thing, but we all know how important it is in military situations and life in general too, of course, um, and, uh, and their attitude. And, and we were talking this morning, uh, weren't we, about you know, what makes a good fighter pilot. And there's a, the, the difficulty with what makes a good fighter pilot is you've got to have a real contradiction in there. You've got to be prepared to risk everything and also be cautious enough not to risk everything at the wrong moment. And I yeah. think clearly Jeff Fiskin is a great example of someone who 
transcended the, the, the limitations of an aircraft he had um, and managed to balance um, between being aggressive enough to shoot down the aircraft but being cautious enough to avoid getting shot down. It is that simple. It is actually the same. Uh, that is complicated at the same time. Absolutely. Um, and again, I'd just like to add to that something I feel very passionately about. We, we remember Jeff Fiskin, but there will have been New Zealanders, everybody else, just as brave and capable as, as Jeff, who weren't lucky at yeah. one moment yeah. or came up against someone else, and well, they're just a number in the book. Exactly. Well, one of those is Bert Whippity. He, yep. he, he actually went on um, to he survived Singapore, but he went on to Europe, and he was shot down and killed there. And there's he, he's been um, touted many times as being an ace, but there's there's kind of conjecture about it because. Uh, I think some of the paperwork from Singapore wasn't quite um, retained because of the, the For invasion. For some reason and they were in a hurry to burn documents because yeah, the Japanese and, were coming And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure of the whole situation there, but there, there are people who argue he, he had shot down enough to be an ace, and others have read me. And as you say, it's just numbers, but, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that just proves you're a pretty damn good pilot if you can shoot down five aircraft. Yeah. So, no, um, no argument and about And that. particularly if you're in Buffalo. Yeah, definitely um, double no argument about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so one of, the little, um, one of the little metaphors I like to use very crude but it's, it'll serve which is that um, if they'd actually had uh, sea furies and bear cats in 1941 in Singapore they would have still lost that battle because it wasn't the aircraft although the buffalo wasn't as great as it might have been great to hear what you were just saying there though Dave uh, it was the fact that the Japanese were in greater numbers which is the number one you know Napoleon as ever was right about this God is on the side of the big battalions but also the air crew, the Japanese air crew had lots of experience right up till then in terms of they were current in combat, they were fit, ready, the morale was yep. sky high, they were winning everywhere they went. Our guys, some of them learnt quickly and, and adapted and, and did very well, but they were exceptions. Um, and there were a very few scattering of people with uh, European combat uh, experience, which was different. It was a completely different air war, so even that was hard to apply. We also have to remember that a lot of those standing squadrons at Singapore when Japan, when, when Japan actually attacked, um, were new squadrons. They'd only just yeah. arrived. They were only just starting to build up the, the presence there. I mean, number 488 New Zealand Squadron had a hell of a time because those guys had only just arrived. Whereas number 243 Squadron, which is what uh, Bert Whippity and uh, and Jeff Fiskin and several others who did well, yeah. they'd been there much longer. They'd acclimatised. They'd been flying the aircraft yeah. a lot longer. And, so yeah, there's also there's several, several factors there, of course. Huge but number and easy for the for enthusiastic people. Sometimes us among them, I, I would absolutely say to go. Oh, this aeroplane is better than that aeroplane. Actually, you're just talking about one little chunk of the mi big mixture, and there's yeah. so much else. D Dave, absolutely correct. Acclimatisation. You're in you're in the tropics. If you're not experienced in a tropical ex uh, environment, you are going to find it really hard uh, just to cope with. It takes a long period to um, adjust from drinking beer at home to gin in, in uh, Singapore. So. <laughs> gin slings, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But more seriously even, there's a point there that, you know, at ground level, you can't wear full flying kit. Yeah. Um, but if you, you, so you don't, and then you go up, you're climbing, and the air temperatures at, at altitude are the same the world over. It's cold up there, and the other thing is, if your aircraft gets hit and catches fire, and you're wearing tropical uh, shorts and, and a, and a t uh, sort of light tropical shirt, um, it's going to be really nasty. And uh, so a lot of those guys had to manage on two things. Okay, well, should we uh, move into one of the other halls now and uh, just take a look at what else is going Evidently on? Evidently, we could go all day here, Dave, but let's let's call a, a day uh, quits to this one. I hope everyone's found that fascinating, and I really have enjoyed that little conversation, Dave, because we just capped on each other's knowledge there, yeah. haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Now we're standing in the Anzac Hall of the Australian War Memorial, and uh, we're looking down on the beautiful Lancaster G for George. Tell us about this aircraft. 
Um, what I should say perhaps before I go into that is you'll hear some combat noises in the background uh, we hope of this and that's the uh, um, over the front display running at the other end of this hall so uh, don't be too distracted I hope you enjoy the background yeah G for George one of the um, the very important surviving Lancasters in the world um, this one was Australian uh, operated throughout uh, the bomber command campaign um, from Britain over predominantly Germany and occupied Europe um, and uh, it's a complete historic machine. There's, there's really G for George and S for Sugar are the two names that we have to bear in mind here. And um, G for George was brought back to Australia and uh, nearly lost. It was brought back for preservation but uh, was vandalised when it was kept outside, uh, kept um, uh, at uh, RAAF Fairburn, the Canberra Airport buildings close to us here. Um, but eventually brought into the museum and, and was conserved and, and uh, repaired by the uh, staff here. Uh, it's a standard Lancaster, uh, fitted with the, um, the, the appropriate turrets for this particular model, which is a nose turret, mid-upper uh, tail gun, foregun turret. Um, no ventral turret, which is the one they really needed, they discovered uh, late in the war. And they've got a display here, it's in a, in a round in the middle, um, with uh, the uh, a bomb trolley um, tug bomb trolley and a 4,000 pound cookie bomb underneath the bomb bay. But the most important thing is that this aircraft is a centrepiece for um, a display called Striking by Night. And Striking by Night is what was once known as a Sonnet Lumiere, sound and light show, um, before cinema really, um, where, uh, where you would have a display um, uh, to have a sort of a, a virtual, what we now call virtual reality experience. What they do here is I think one of the best displays of any aviation or war memorial I've been to, which is they use this aircraft, completely static, and some supporting artifacts to do a, an explanation of what a raid on Germany was like. So if you come along, uh, what, you, what you would get would be um, the, the whole darkens and you get the sound of a Merlin engine starting up and everybody listening I know what a, will know what a Merlin starting up sounds like but that's projected through speakers and the clever bit here is that they use um, uh, a strobing light on the two props on the port side of the aircraft and that strobing light gives the impression of those engines starting to kick over. I'm, I'm moving my hands here uh, to sort of indicate the props moving and uh, it's incredibly effective. It's, at first you sort of think, oh, that, that, that may be a bit cheesy, but then you start to get immersed because what then happens is they project film up on behind, big screens behind the aircraft, which is extracted from a famous colour World War II uh, film uh, uh, owned now by the Imperial War Museum um, called uh, Night Bombers, which is about uh, Bomber Command Lancaster Squadron, and a certain amount of, um, well frankly, a bit primitive CGI, uh, certainly compared to what we're hearing in the background here on the other side, um, but good enough, very good for the job. And they go through the raid, they talk about crossing the enemy coast, they're attacked by an enemy fighter, and they kind of really are, because we have one of the rarest aircraft in the collection, a completely original 109, Messerschmitt 109G, um, which is used in a, in a Wild Dessau, the, um, the, the free day fighter night attack role, no radar, just seeing what they could find and shoot up, and they've got the upper turret and the mannequin in there, that gets lit up, that little get flashes from the guns, they've got a couple of little uh, lights in the uh, Messerschmitt's gun ports um, attacking it. With the sound and the noise that they put together, there's a 88mm gun down below and as they approach the target, the uh, film screens switch to um, the, 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 uh, the ground defences kicking in and then suddenly the 88 gun fires, in quotes, um, you know, there's a bang and the lights are used to, to give that off. Um, and then uh, they go into the bombing run, bombs gone, 
They don't have the sound of the bombs dropping. Really important point here. Um, the, the way the soundscape is, is put together is both a mix of credible authenticity and, and stuff that you would believe and need to hear or feel to put the story together. Because it's a story, but it's a story of a real uh, actual raid uh, on a particular night that G for George, uh, this Lancaster ARG um, W4783 uh, was actually on. They dropped the bombs and then again the screen switched to the recipients, the, the uh, frankly poor German civilians and, and, and uh, uh, Luftwaffe uh, anti-aircraft crews fighting back um, and they recreate some of the, the, uh, the detail of that raid and again a sad, sad thing here about how we understand them all. They cannot and should not show what really happened on the ground because it is appalling. Um, Rights and wrongs aside, you know, it's terrible we have to do, we've done these things to each other in the past. Leaving well, they that actually do show that a little bit because you see the, the fire um, yes. escape on the big screens. Yes, you do. You see the, you see the fire escape, but uh, I mean, again, I don't want to talk about it on, on our recording because some of the... Well, it's death and destruction and really nasty ways of people being killed and, and, and buildings and cities being wrecked are appalling and we so easily cruise past that. Well, there was a war on. Yes, but it would about. be nice if we didn't. I mean, this is one of the points where we're sort of touching on with the, uh, the, the thing, the whole podcast series. Anyway, um, so that, and then they have the return flight, the landing back and base, and a very powerful, I think, um, round out <clears throat> um, by one of the recorded accounts read by a, a woman um, replicating the written, the written letter of, of the, uh, the young woman, remembering how many of these air crew never came back. And then they just... Um, they just put up the numbers on the <coughs> on the screen up there, and uh, they're not good numbers. They're, they're again appalling uh, numbers and appalling sacrifice. And uh, uh, so part of what the memorial is about is that people remember these things. Uh, we do remember them uh, as a result of what's going on here. And I, I would really uh, ask that people think very hard about you know how we continue to have these problems, these wars, and these these confrontations where. Uh, it seems to be the easy route to go and, and fight and kill each other because uh, it's a horrible, horrible waste. However, the point about um, what we're talking about here beyond that, which is the really important thing, is that it's a really incredibly strong, powerful uh, presentation uh, of a, a critical element for Australia and New Zealand and Canada, um, as well as Britain and in a different way with the day bombing with America um, over Europe. Uh, and it presents in a really interesting way. I'm lucky enough to have seen um, uh, the Ballabrit Memorial Flight, Lancaster, fly over uh, Worcester High Street, uh, standing next to a bunch of Bomber Command veterans. That's as powerful as you probably would expect it to be. Um, I've been very, very lucky, uh, worked very hard and uh, flown in the Canadian Warplane Heritage Lancaster uh, uh, over North America and that's all that you would expect it to be starting with noisy and uncomfortable and not scary, great crew and I wasn't at war but I could see how it would be utterly, utterly terrifying. But I would say alongside those, this presentation of this Lancaster here uh, is one of the most powerful ways of using an artifact to show uh, the nature of the war and how it, how it was fought. And I think again, all credit to all three of those organisations, the War Memorial, the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight of the Royal Air Force and the Canadian Warplane Heritage in Canada, an independent volunteer museum, uh, that they've done a terrific job actually showing um, how these things are done without any of the glorification that is easy to slip into or the simplistic, you know, jingoistic, we did what was needed to be done. I, I hope we believe in, I 
hope and believe we, we did what was needed to be done, but we mustn't ever forget that it was human beings at the other end too. Yeah, Dave. I, I just want to make a couple of points too. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that immediately struck me is that the, the narrator of this um, wonderful sound and light show was Bud Tingwall, who was himself a, a World War II pilot. Indeed. And then later a, a much much more famous actor, I guess, than, yeah, than yeah. pilot. But uh, that, 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 that was really nice um, to have him. And, of course, he's no longer with us, like most veterans. So. No, and uh, and um, uh, Keith Webb, who uh, we have another podcast of, um, please check out Keith, uh, was lucky enough to, to interview Bud, and, and uh, Bud was to w- worked with the um, um, Tomorrow Aviation Museum on uh, a number of things that they developed there as well. And, Dave, I've, you, you gave me the chance to run there. I really appreciate because I'm very passionate, I hope, obviously, about this particular display. I think it's under credit and underseen because unlike the uh, the other Lancasters I mentioned which tour around the advantage of an airworthy aircraft you have to come to Canberra to see this display what did you think of it? I think it's awesome I, I think the um, the display has a lot of power to it um, even just sitting here static it looks fa- mm. looks absolutely fantastic the way it's lit um, the fact that you've got the um, the Messerschmitt BF109G um, you know coming in from its port beam yep, um, yep. in a rather menacing looking way and looks pretty scary even here doesn't it it does and and you've got the um, you've got the 88 millimeter flak gun there which was one of the most devastating uh, weapons both on land and and for the air war um, but you know the aircraft itself is, is beautifully presented yeah um, it's obviously been repainted at some stage and I noticed uh, just looking here that along most of the uh, the fuselage you've got an, a, a very soft um, demarcation between the camouflage and the black, but yeah. then you get to the the section behind the um, the, the turret, and it, and, and it becomes a, a very hard mast. Yeah. And it's it's obviously they've found photographs of the real aircraft. I'm sure. Well, yeah. it, this is the real aircraft. Obviously, yeah, you fall into these but, traps. But don't the, you, yeah. the, the, the period photographs Photograph, and, yeah. and seeing that at some stage it must have had its um, its rear end uh, replaced, I imagine. Uh, um, actually, Dave, that's a good point. I think that what we're looking at here, and I'm again, right in if we're wrong, and you know better, mm. um, that you're looking at a, a subcontracted assembly situation where um, the Lancaster was built in uh, segments. Yep, and different factories. Different and factories, and they were working to a particular spec, but there were little variations between one factory and another, and yeah. you would see operational Lancasters with, ma- with what we've got here, which is a camouflage not lo- quite lined up. Really good thing to pluck out there, Dave. Yeah, and another thing too, if you look on the fronts of the spinners, there are actually Nazi swastikas, and I just wonder, are they kill markings? Or no, no, I don't believe. I think that's just one of the decorations. But on the other side of the side we're on here is a, the tally board of the of the, uh, the bomb raids this particular aircraft flew on. And one of the funny little things for those not familiar with uh, uh, high uh, high raid aircraft is actually tracking down the number of raids an aircraft flew is often much more difficult than you'd think. You'd think it's a pretty clear-cut thing that we flew to Germany and back and that's one raid but anyone who studied the, the what we call the Centurions the uh, uh, the aircraft that flew a hundred uh, enemy raid, raids over enemy territory or more it's really interesting that most of the accounts say uh, you know this particular one is a bit disputed because the operational record book says this the crew records say that and you know sometimes they had to turn back from technical faults or um, it, it, even in a remarkably well-documented war there can be dispute about some of these details oh, and, and also, you know, the, these these high raid aircraft, hundred uh, plus raids they did. They did a lot of other flying in between as well. Every time that they were, went went out on an operation, they'd already um, completed the, 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 what they called the night flying test, which was usually done in the daytime. Yes. Um, just to just to make sure the aircraft was running sweet. And 
you know, the hours on them um, for an operational aircraft must have been quite significant because they went long distances too, often up to seven-hour flights just to, you know, for one operation. So, indeed, I mean, again, as in Australia here, we're used to big distances, but uh, uh, Lancasters and other heavy bombers, the Stirlings, um, the um, the Halifax, but even before them, Whitleys and so on, um, and Wellingtons. They would fly raids from Britain to Italy, across mm. occupied Europe and back yep. in a night in an aircraft with no insulation, with no real hearing protection except the, the earphones and so on. No wonder so many of these guys were, were, were deaf after and, and, the war. And, and flying over Alps and, yeah, uh, yeah. and other, other dangerous things in, in peacetime. Uh, yep. uh, you know, and you're doing it at night when there's uh, every danger of being picked up by you know, enemy radar and picked yep. up by fighters and picked up by flak and all that sort of thing. And it was just remarkable what they, it was. they went through. One of the things there I'd like to, to bring in, Dave, really important to me, I think, is that having studied this, it's easy, you come in, you know, it might be you think this particular aeroplane is cool or that story is great or whatever it is, but then as time goes on, you begin to learn some of the context. And one of the contexts I learned a few years ago, partly thanks to my good friend, uh, historian Dr. Brett Holman, I'd like to name check him for this, um, is that what, what happened with the bomber campaign in Germany in World War II was a very weird thing. In the First World War, the, the trench warfare on the Western Front had traumatised um, all of the nations involved. The Americans arriving uh, in 1918, but the French particularly and the British and our elements of the British Empire there, Dave. But um, So one of the things was we, we never wanted to have another war. The yeah. war to end all wars. Yeah. Tragically, that became evident it wasn't going to be the war to end all wars. Um, and one of the thoughts was they were looking at the knockout blow. Um, and that's the, the phrase that Brett uses. It's not his, it comes before, but he talks a lot about it. And the knockout blow was the idea that you could have a really big bomber force. It might actually be convertible airliners in the 30s. That did happen too. Um, and that bomber force would be able to fly over the enemy, uh, usually the enemy capital or their centres of production or their air bases or whatever it might be. Um, and in, within minutes or an hour or so, something like that actually completely knock out the capability of that country to fight. Yeah. Um, and everybody's theory, they talked about things like it was the human body, like the, it was attacking nerve centres is a phrase you often come across in the 30s. The other phrase I'm sure everybody <coughs> listening is familiar with is, the bomber will always get through. Um, and everybody firmly believed in the 1930s that the bomber would always get through. It would devastate London or Warsaw or um, uh, Wellington or Sydney and, um, and then we would just have to surrender. What we sadly, what we found, and it turned out to be sadly, was that they did get through in significant numbers, and they did cause huge devastation. Warsaw was one of the first cities really badly attacked that way. Rotterdam um, was basically uh, flattened by the Germans to force the Dutch to, to surrender, and that really did have pretty much that effect. A bit more complicated um, than that, but that's the shortcut. But what we found was that we bombed Germany, and we bombed Germany, and we bombed Germany, and it went on and on, and it cost us huge numbers of uh, young men, uh, huge amounts of resources, um, an entire training system in, in Canada fed by the entire Commonwealth to provide the men for this, um, and they just didn't give up. And, and um, every pre-war theory was was literally blown away, terrible, terrible pun there, but um, that we thought eventually they would crack. Uh, why not? Complicated perhaps, but what we did is we moved the trenches, the appalling atrocities, uh, not atrocities, the appalling losses, the, the meat grinder of the Western Front into the air. And there's a great book, different subject, but it talks about trenches in the sky. And I think the numbers lost in Bomber Command alone 
New Zealanders, Australians, Canadians, all of the others, the Czechs, the Poles we haven't mentioned, but we recognise, of course. Um, those losses were equivalent to First World War trench warfare. The two highest loss areas to serve in in World War II was the U-boat command and bomber command. Yeah, um, and that is that is um, that is amazing. I, I should imagine there's areas of the Russian war which were equally as appalling in loss rates. And the numbers, I'm, I'm not mentioning the numbers because um, it, it just oh, I just find it inconceivable because every one of those numbers is a human being who you know was lost or dismembered or terribly injured. Um, well, I will say about Dave. the numbers that the, the numbers proportionately are pretty much identical to the, the numbers of New Zealanders um, that, that went along to Bomber Command and, and lost their lives. It's, yeah. it's around about a third of every every member who joined Bomber Command didn't come home. And, and you know one of the tragedies was we had one of the highest sophisticated technical wars going on. We had electronic countermeasures being invented, counter-countermeasures, um, radar employed in new ways, amazing things. But at the end of the day, frankly, your lucky rabbit's foot or your, your girlfriend's silk stocking was as likely to save you as all of the best countermeasures that you had. And some of them, some of them actually work against you. People like to turn on particular radar receivers that the Germans homed in on, for instance. Um, so uh, it, it, I find the fascinating, appalling contradiction of this war, uh, the Bomber Command War, is, is a really interesting area of uh, um, how tough things can get. Yeah. I've known a lot of uh, Bomber, I've been, had the privilege to know a lot of Bomber Command veterans and one of the key things is too, we talk about the atrocities or, or, or the devastation, the, 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 the horrible, um, horrible things that happened because of the Bomber Command raids and other Bomber yep. forces. But, what has to also be remembered is the individual members of those crews, um, they had no say on what they were doing. No. They uh, they usually, most of those guys would have joined up wanting to, to um, fly Spitfires, because everybody <laughs> wanted to fly Spitfires Indeed. in those days. Um, you know, and, and found themselves a, as an air gunner or a wireless operator or a navigator or flight engineer or, uh, or a pilot uh, or second pilot. And, um, you know, those guys... They, they were just doing what they were trained to do, they, they were doing their bit, they were doing what they were told to do by um, RAF policy, which came from government policy. Indeed. And, you know, if, if anyone should be blamed for anything, it's uh, politicians, and that, that's what is always, <laughs> yeah. always the blame um, with any war. So, yeah, I think I've, personally, I've got absolutely no um, no qualms about what these guys did. They, they went and did what they had to do. Um, it's just a shame that they had to do it. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. And I, I'd just like to point out, I'm not, I didn't talk, didn't mention blame specifically because mm. that, I was talking about consequences of what we deal with. But you're absolutely right. Oh yeah, to bring yeah. I mean, I wasn't saying you'd, no, you'd, no. you'd said that. I mean, a lot of other people do um, try and blame the. There's a there's a big faction of people these days who try and blame the veterans, and it's it's just wrong. It's very, just very wrong. Very good point. Um, and now, and I think I'd, I'd pick up on that. Um, you know, consequences is one thing, lots of other things blame, and, and being uh, judicial and, and, and judging is very easy to do, but uh, we have to recognise the complexity of the situation these guys were in, yeah. um, and I think one of the great things we've been able to do with this trip, what we have managed, Dave, is that you managed to interview a very significant Australian Bomber Command veteran uh, with Peter Isaacson, who I know has very strong opinions, justifiably so, on the role of Bomber Command. Yeah. We should listen to people like him, his opinion is important, but we should also listen to historians who generally have very measured and be wary of people who want simple answers or simple and again I would like to say I wasn't looking for simple answers I was just looking for recognition that it was an appalling appalling thing. Yeah, and this is a war memorial museum and we're not just remembering those who didn't come home as well we're remembering those who did come home yeah but they you know they went through appalling uh, terrifying awful nights yep. in these bombers and 
um, came home and rebuilt themselves and rebuilt society after the war. So, yep. you know, it's a tribute to them as well. Indeed. I, I just want to turn back to the aircraft itself. Mm. I just want to say what a wonderful thing it is that you can actually stand here and look down on the aircraft. You used to be able to do that with Motats 1. They had a, a mezzanine floor. Yep. When, it, when I say Motats 1, the, the, the Lancaster and um, the Museum of Transport and Technology in Auckland, which is New Zealand's only Lancaster, yep. on display. And... Um, and uh, you know you used to be able to look down on on the uh, Lancaster from a sort of eye level with the cockpit, and you yeah. can't do that anymore because of the way the new hangar's set up. And yeah. um, magnificent new hangar, we should say. Oh, right? absolutely. It, 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 I mean, I'm not saying that no, there's no. any problem with that, but no. it, it's actually great to be able to come up to this sort of eye level because when you stand at the bottom and look up, the Lancaster is a big bloody aircraft, it, and yeah. and this one's got its tail up a bit. Um, the one yes. the one in um, New Zealand doesn't, so the the, co the cockpit's even higher um, yeah. away from you, and you can't really look into the cockpit. And, and it makes a real um, real difference to be able to walk around on two levels. You can walk around underneath it, and, yep. you, can, and you can walk around um, with eye level to the to the top of the um, to the top of the fuselage and look into the into the uh, cockpit. Where we have into a, the a pilot, pilot mannequin, and there's a mm. there's a guy in the a mannequin in the mid upper turret. Really good point there, Dave. And I'm glad you mentioned that because um, what I'd like to add to that is that with the sound and light show we were talking about before, that was called striking by night. Um, one of the things uh, that, that, that they've done is to make sure that you can watch this from several different viewpoints. Anybody involved in theatre or film knows how hard it is as soon as you open up the, you know, the, the theatre in the round is the obvious exact, uh, comparison. How hard it is to position the actors, the aircraft here are actors for our story, um, so that everybody in each position gets a good view. And, and um, just a little paint a picture here. We're standing up, um, oh, I don't know, what do you reckon, Dave, about seven or eight metres above the ground level here? About that. About that, just above the uh, the aircraft with the tail up, as Dave's just said, uh, leaning against a, a clear but very tough glass uh, um, um, low parapet with uh, seats behind us that you can sit on for the show. So you can see, um, but also move right up close, and there's no obstruction here. I think the viewpoints the museum has, has done um, remarkably well for, for a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, and another little thing we talked about yesterday, downstairs below us there's a, a painting of a Bomber Command Lancaster crew by Stella Bowen. Yeah. And uh, I'd just like to talk about that for a moment because it's a fascinating story I have uh, learnt recently, which is that she did some sketches of this crew. I've seen the sketches on the War Memorial uh, website, as are the, the, uh, the painting and other information, and some photographs. She had those taken of that crew and before she started painting their Lancaster, was lost on operations and they were all killed, um, believed dead. And um, Stella completed the painting and two things she said about it, I'm paraphrasing here, the quotes are available on the War Memorial website again, but she said, uh, firstly, it was like painting ghosts, yeah. as you can very much imagine, and they were, you know, bright young men. But you, you pass their faces in the street today and, uh, in, you know, so many cities. Um, but, but um, and the other thing was... Um, uh, she discovered after the war, that, or late in the war I think, that one of the guys, uh, uh, I think he was a gunner, certainly called Lynch, uh, had survived in a prisoner of war camp. And that again, I think, the idea of someone, you looking at a crew and then um, them disappearing, them yeah. being lost, and then painting that crew uh, who stand for all of the others. And one of the things we talk about never forgetting, but it's so easy to focus on what we have not what we've lost, to focus on the aces and the people who um, may not have been aces but got through the war, thank, thank whatever they you know, wanted to thank, um, but so many of them just were extinguished just like that or, or, or worse. Um, so it's easy to forget those. Um, 
so the second thing uh, she said was that the Lancaster to her was like a giant uh, praying insect behind the crew. And right. I think it's a really interesting, because you and I, we look at a Lancaster as a friendly thing, as, as a, a powerful weapon to be used against our enemies. But to her, as a, as a woman painter, I don't know whether it was as a woman or as a painter or as just as a person or a non-military person, as an official war artist, she saw it as, a, as a, a, something that was about to devour her, her subjects. And again, that kind of insight informs us, I think. It makes us think again about how we look at these things. Because, um, and, and to turn that on its head, if we say the word Stuka to everybody who's listening, I'm sure it's a, a word in redolent of evil and terror and scariness. But if you're in the Wehrmacht, the Stuka was your friend. Yeah. It was the thing that knocked things out ahead of you. The Stuka was the favourite aircraft yeah. of the Wehrmacht, absolutely. the German army. And, and so again, it very much depends on where you stand with these things. Yeah, absolutely. And while we're up here, James, um, I think I'd like to actually turn our attention now to another display at the other end of the hall. We'll, we'll talk about that, and that's uh, the over-the-front display, which yeah. um, goes back a whole generation to World War One, yes. and um, concentrates on the air war um, and the amazing aircraft that are there, uh, which are all original aircraft. We talk, yes. talked about these with um, Jamie Croker in the Trelaw Conservation yep. Centre, and um, the, you know these aircraft are all sitting there sort of static, but they, they're brought to life by an amazing film, which is... Uh, been made by people from uh, New Zealand, uh, Peter Jackson's crew, with, um, uh, I'm not sure if it was uh, wetter, wetter um, workshops or whether it was uh, um, wingnut um, oh, films, right, yep. uh, some using the, the Vintage Aviator Limited's um, aircraft. Uh, aircraft and uh, a lot of CGI, so I, I guess it's got to be the wingnut films people. And the yep. w- oh, well, actually, I, I'll have to... <laughs> So Tell you what, Dave, we'll make it simple. We say those wonderful Kiwis. Yeah, it's all, uh, <laughs> and it's all down to um, Peter Jackson's companies. Uh, it is, yes, and that's and probably the important point because it was a... It was uh, a and the reason we are so confused is because there's no credits on the film. Yes. And um, obviously they've decided not to take credit, and uh, which is a... Uh, an interesting and noble um, thing to do. I think so. And, uh, and we, sh- we should just clarify that that is a distinctively unusual thing here because there's multiple film shows. All of the other ones I'm aware of are credited. The Striking yeah. by Night has credits at the end. Um, there's little film shows in, in sort of TVs and, and iPads and stuff and they've all got credits of sources and so on. There right. is nothing at the end of the uh, over the front display. So it's got to be a deliberate decision I'm sure. Um, I don't know but I'm sure it must have been from, from uh, Peter Jackson's guys. Now um, this actual presentation with the, the World War One aircraft mm. it, it um, basically shows the three different Australian uh, squadrons of the Australian Flying Corps on the Western, um, front. On the Western front in, in World War One on a particular um, operation where they encounter a number of uh, German enemy aircraft, which <laughs> yes. were uh, the Fokker triplanes, and there's some um, some lovely Albatross in there, and then the, the, later the D7s come into it. And um, unlike the G for George uh, versus the Messerschmitt. Uh, 109 um, display. Um, it, they've picked on a fictional event. They've made a um, dramatic version, and um, yes. and using the the wonderful real uh, aircraft of TVAL and a lot of CGI to make them multiplied. Yes, we, we very get, we, Yeah, we do. Is. We get to see uh, a, a small squadron of uh, SE5As, which are representing um, the Australian... Which which squadron is that? Three Squadron, I think? No, Three Squadron was the RE8s, oh, right. um, but I can't remember the others. And a little point there is that the um, the British insist upon referring to our squadrons with other numbers, and we insist upon referring to them with the Australian AFC numbers, so it makes it even more complicated. But yeah, Three Squadron's on the Western Front, Dave, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, 
you just have to watch it to, to really take it in. You, I mean, you, you can't really describe how good it is uh, seeing a, a big wide screen with, with a huge air battle going on. And it's kind of, uh, to me, watching it, it, it brought back those real air battles that they filmed, um, when I say real, real aircraft battling each other in the likes of Wings and uh, some, of, so, some of those other 1930s Indeed, yes. um, films where they really were flying aircraft and hammering them against each other. Yep. And, and, and yet... Um, we know that it had to have used a bit of CGI because at that time TVAL didn't have all these aircraft and now they've got more aircraft than they had when they made this but uh, they haven't actually got you know yes. seven, or, seven or eight D7s in fact I think there might have been more than that um, Fokker D7s so um, but you don't really notice that oh this is what you're, obviously what you're, CGI so what you're talking about there Dave is, is a, a challenging contradiction on the one hand there's a film show so people um, uh, the general public coming and watching it or, or um, uh, historians not interested in preservation would just see what they see and they'd see an air combat and it's got some mm. fascinating elements to it to us who uh, uh, know a bit behind how this this was brought together uh, the aircraft involved you you kind of go mm, okay so we've got a flight of three SE5s being replicated so you get three three flights of three um, and that works really well and there's a wonderful shot one of my favorite shots it's all great. I yeah. agree with you, Dave. Yeah. It's a terrific achievement. Um, but there's a wonderful shot of the of the squadron of SE5s uh, taking off in the air and the and the flights one yeah. after the other, yeah. and that's just cracking. And it you've is. got an amazing French landscape in uh, New Zealand. I understand from this, Dave, or is that all faked? Yeah, well, <laughs> in, I mean, it, it is very realistic. You, you can see a couple of hills there, which you Aussies probably call mountains, but <laughs> absolutely. Um, but actually, another great scene is the um, there's a, a lone Sopwith fighter, yes, um, Sopwith Sop, Sop camel. camel, and and it takes on. Um, one of the most dangerous things to take on because of all the f uh, flat guns that would have been around it, um, and that's uh, that's one of the big German kite observation balloons, balloons yeah. kite, kite balloons, balloons yeah. Blo yeah. And, and that is just brilliant to watch on the big screen, isn't it, James? It is brilliant to watch, and uh, it's a really an often overlooked element of the air war. And as Dave's correctly said, um, they weren't just funny little things over the front; they were heavily defended. Mm. Um, they were some of the few airmen throughout the war who had parachutes. Most airmen didn't have parachutes. Some yep. Germans did at the end. Mostly ours didn't. Um, and uh, the funny thing about that is, some as you might guess, there are no uh, there are no airworthy kite balloons floating around these days. Exactly so it's entirely CGI, completely uh, completely fictional and, and, and pixel. Um, but it's there's a bit where it, it uh, unsurprisingly gets shot up and goes down, and not revealing anything that you wouldn't figure out. Um, and when it collapses in on itself as the gas escapes, you would believe you're looking at a real kite balloon collapsing. Yeah, I just want to say too, for any New Zealanders who are coming to Canberra, make sure you you pop into the museum here and just if nothing else watch that film and feel a bit of Kiwi pride. And quite right Dave yeah. um, I think more than that um, if you're coming to Australia you might not have Canberra on your shopping list but uh, coming to the War Memorial as I think we're putting over in our podcast uh, is one of the great Australian things to do is in, if you're coming to Australia a great thing to do in Australia um, and uh, you know again talking about G for George as well as what you just mentioned there Dave it's an international affair we didn't ever operate on our own in these kind of contexts uh, it was always in cooperation with other countries yep. and other, other people and we do appreciate the diversity of that um, uh, contribution, although I absolutely agree with you, and just to pick up a point we made in another bit of our programs, uh, we're a bit lax here in Australia, Dave, about uh, recognising the NZ bit of ANZAC at times, and I'd like as, a, as an Australian to apologise that we need to do a lot better than that sometimes. Um, we can be a bit parochial, uh, everyone can, but I don't think that excuses it. But going back to the over the front, uh, it's terrific, it's a 40-something, I think 45 metre wide screen, um, and you sit down in a kind of a, a circular area 
area with a, with a screen curved around you. You've got an SE5, genuine SE5 on a pole above you. You have a, a false uh, up behind you and uh, an albatross to your, to your hand. Uh, Paras DH9 uh, in, in front of you um, and the uh, Avro 504, the Imperial Gift post-war silver painted aircraft as well. It's a really interesting mix there. Lots of models, artifacts and, and so on as well. And you have this film show come on. It's, it's actually quite short but I think it's like the uh, Striking by Night, you travel you travel a huge distance in a short time. Striking by Night tells of a night raid over a long period of time. It's actually something like seven minutes long. Yeah. Yet you feel, after you've watched it, you feel a bit wrung out sometimes. Mm. I, I still find it really engrossing and I've watched it I don't know how many times. Um, and I, and I, I think we're, something we touched on earlier, or I hope I did, was that at the end of it, you can hear a pin drop. Most of the times yep. I've watched it, even the most boisterous school group or the most distracted uh, uh, people who don't speak English, perhaps, uh, here just wandering through. And once you've been through the sound and the lights and the story, which is very visual and active and en engaging and engrossing, um, you're kind of going, wow, that was pretty amazing. The over the front is the same. And, and I think one of the points that Dave and I have chewed over since you were watching them yesterday, um, Dave, for the first time, um, is they're, um, they're very, very important, powerful, but they're different. I, it's easy to say, oh, I prefer this one or that one, for any number of reasons. You prefer World War One or World War Two. You like a narrative that's fictional or factual, or you like them to, in my case, you like them to use the real artifacts, which they do very well in Striking by Night, and the artifacts aren't actually included in the, in the over-the-front first of all. I don't think that would work, to be honest. But actually, they're complementary, and they're different. And I think, what I hope is that, like ourselves, a lot of people who come and see those go, wow, that's amazing, and they go, how did they do that? Yeah. Which is an important thing because you know museums—they're not dusty aircraft in a shed. Let's let's come on, let's move away from that cliche. These aircraft are kept very well looked after, very clean. Um, as Andy Bishop said, in certain ways they're better than than um, aircraft that fly as original artifacts, which is a basic tenant of museum policy. Um, and then when you get these things uh, worked in, which I think the world, the War Memorial, does. Uh, as well as anybody else in the world and, and I think uh, there's very few pit places I would call a, a peer to this and I'm very uh, unbiased I hope with this uh, I've seen some amazing stuff in, in museums around the world I've tracked down a lot of different aircraft collections with fantastic stuff but uh, for these two displays there's nothing to touch them. Um, no and I, I really hope that someday soon in the future um, Sir Peter might actually find the time to um, create a, a similar display with a New Zealand theme in New Zealand um, with, with the, uh, the film pr presentation. It would be great to see something like that in New Zealand too. I agree Dave, um, uh, I think uh, that's very likely and perhaps inevitable in due course. Yeah, and I mean who else could do it other than him? So one of the things about this uh, film um, that we've got showing the First World War is they've chosen to fictionalise it and there's some really interesting bits to pick up about that, so it's bookended. They, so they book on, booking the film. So we have the bit at the beginning, which is uh, the, the um, uh, original footage from uh, the First World War, which obviously is very rare. There's, there's more of it than we realise, but it's still very rare. And it's really good stuff, little little chunks, and it puts into context. And now that, of course, is, repeating myself, but it's important, is real. Um, and you, you noticed it was uh, very clean, Dave. Yeah. Yep. very much cleaned up and, and you're kind of suspicious that maybe this is modern film stuff but some of those little sequences are well known to World War One aficionados so that's great and then at the end of the film and I'm not giving anything away here it's, it's no sort of secrets but they freeze on the on the aircraft crew and then they, they transition to some photographs of um, remarkable um, young men from that period who went on to other things to uh, senior later what was later the Air Force officers uh, founders of airlines and, and so forth um, so that's really neat and it's really good that they've embedded or 
sort of tied the thing down with some factual stuff. The other thing is they've chosen a fictionalised approach to the story. There's a couple of narratives in there which we won't spoil for people in, in terms of how they work. And there's some little funny bits and there's a couple of really nasty tragic tragic bits. And I think it's, and um, as you would expect from the, um, as to summarise Dave's complicated company's thing, the great Kiwis uh, who produce these wonderful films, it's a great excellently put together narrative it's got pacing the music works really well it's kind of mixture of sub elgar type stuff and and, and, and you know the, the human voice um very interesting soundscape notably i, I noticed today dave um, that we had some surround sound with the striking by night display there's a bit where the brakes chirp as they touch down and it comes from behind you and it makes yeah. a sort of jump when you think it's all over whereas there's no surround sound with the uh, the, the first world war film it's actually in front of you not not uh, that that detracts from it it's still powerful for that you're fully focused on the screen and, and that might be why yeah. yeah that might be why they've done it that way part of the fun of this game for people like ourselves and for those that are not familiar Dave is very experienced um, filmmaker in his um, in a previous life um, you know just figuring out how and why they put these things together and, and so I really credit the film as, uh, of the uh, over the front as terrific but a couple of things I'd like to mention that aren't covered um, that I think are important so first of all um, the Australian Flying Corps had a very major role in the Middle East in the First World War and um, they could have made the film about that. They didn't, that's fine, you make these choices, but I think I'd just like to mention that, uh, that the, um, uh, who became the father of the Royal Australian Air Force, um, uh, Sir Richard Williams, um, was serving predominantly in the Middle East and some of the great photographs, the colour, genuine colour photographs in the First World War we have are from the Middle East um, and those combats were completely different to what we know of the Western Front. So that might have informed the choice they made of, you know, what do we do? Do we show people what is the, the major campaign but Australia played a more minor role or do we show a minor campaign where Australia played a major role? You can see how those decisions are hard for museums to choose and there would have been a lot of wrangling behind the scenes about what they can do, what they can't do and why. The other thing which I touch on, which I think is a, a thing that's really important that was left out, which is what the RE8 squadrons were doing. Um, so they talk about the RE8 squadrons uh, in the... Um, in this film um, and uh, the RE8 enters a pretty um, stonking battle but they don't show what the RE8 would have been doing before that battle and I think that's really important because what the RE8s were doing was they were artillery observation aircraft they yeah. were operating with the army guys uh, and they were um, picking up the fall of shot uh, it's a complicated system I won't try and explain it here we might do it as a little addendum in another podcast uh, but I did a bit of research when we we're doing a, an aircrew feature on this picking up the fall of shot and correcting the fall of shot of the gunners um, uh, over the over the front so basically often fly figure eights or figure a racetrack pattern over the uh, no man's land or forward or back of that at, at heights. I mean, one of the mistakes they sometimes made was to unwittingly descend to a point where they would um, uh, actually within, be within the arc of the shells, their own shells, and there were records of aircraft being hit by a shell in uh, in-flight ballistic trajectory, and the aircraft obviously being completely wrecked and the crew killed in, in, in mid-flight. Um, the the other thing about that is that we've kind of gone over to thinking it's about fighter pilots and bombers and, and modern warfare aviation often plays that role and there's uh, air transport and um, you know insertion and 
agents and all sorts of stuff, but a critical role all the way down from the First World War is working, being the eye in the sky. I mean, that's where we started. The, the, the first reason for having military aviation was to put an eye in the sky. And we've seen, talking to uh, to uh, Murray Wallace, who would have been yeah, trained as a... I was just going to bring the same yeah, thing yeah. up. He, 50 years later, he was doing exactly the same thing in his bird dogs. Yeah, um, and, and, um, and likewise, uh, you know, that's what the bird dog was for. That was what the Oster AOP and the, the, uh, the Piper L4 of, of the American force of doing in World War Two, um, and the RE-8 was both that and also a combat aircraft and, and so on. But it's easy to think of the RE-8 as oh, I've heard a pilot who ought to know better saying oh, it was really kind of like a two-seat fighter. It's like nothing of the kind. It was it was an artillery observation aircraft. And um, uh, as my good friend Rob Langham, who's very much more knowledgeable about World War One aviation than me, uh, pointed out. RE-8s were responsible for more effect on the enemy than any other type. The fighters were there to keep the sky clean, very glamorous, all of that stuff that we know about, but their job was to achieve air superiority, and one side would have it in the other and back and forth, but it was a defensive goalkeeper role. But they were also there to knock down the opposition's uh, exactly. spotters, so, yes. that, so they weren't getting the, uh, the edge on what was going on with, That's right. with their artillery. Yeah. And the First World War bombers, were, well, they didn't carry the weight of bombs. I mean, by the end, we had some pretty big bombers doing some pretty incredible stuff but as we saw in World War Two, um, we weren't able to break German Germany by bombing alone had a big effect but even with World War Two equipment World War One equipment absolutely no way was that going to happen but there is no question that the role of the artillery spotters uh, was a very important one I just like to bring that into the mix that um, it's not covered in the film um, that's a pity but um, the film works in a narrative way in the other way so it's great we can sort of cap that up Dave yeah, another uh, point you mentioned about bringing the three different squadrons into the film. Yeah, uh, three different Australian squadrons that were on the on the Western Front, and the way that I see it is that you know they were basically showing a day in the life of those squadrons, and and one of them was quite independent to the other two. The, yeah. the, the Sopwith uh, camel camel fighting out and and the. In the um, and it seemed to be a different area, and you know, taking on that balloon. It's, it's yeah. really just showing a day, a day in the life, and it's a fictional day in the life, but it's Indeed. actually showing what they really did. Yes. Uh, so that, that that was quite. Um, and, there, and there are light moments in the film and very dark moments. There's very exactly so, Dave. There's uh, people do you know they they start the aircraft and you get to see them hand swinging the props, which for most listeners here are familiar with early aircraft, that's an everyday thing. Most of the people watching the film here, the idea of starting something by hand swinging it by by um, by moving it with a, uh, uh, you know, getting that prop to kick over, and you see them, you know, them winding up the magneto to get the sparks and all of that. So uh, there's a couple of great points there, but we haven't really talked much about the aircraft in the World War One display. I think it's worth we should do that because some of them are really important, really rare, um, in sort of reverse order, running down the uh, the hit parade, as it were. The Avro 504 is an Imperial gift aircraft given to Australia by Britain to set up the air force with. The SE5 uh, is, uh, I believe, a World War One veteran, um, but not with a combat history. Um, and we have uh, Ray Parra's uh, DH9, the aircraft he flew all the way from uh, Britain to Australia as part of the 1919 air race won by uh, the Smith brothers and, and their crew, uh, Shires and Bennett. Um, Ray, in, in Ray's inimitable way, took forever to get here, crashed his aircraft multiple times, but he delivered Peter Dawson's bottle of whiskey safely at the end of the process. And uh, that aircraft has a big sponsorship, a big PD uh, standing out on the side. So sponsors Are you sure he actually delivered the same bottle or did he just get it, did he actually just get it in duty free on the on the arrival? 
<laughs> it would be easier to turn in duty free by quite some way and there's a lot of times where if I'd been right I'd have drunk that bottle of whiskey because he had some pretty scary adventures and anybody who wants to read about an airman who just never ever ever gave up read up about Ray Parra um, he was in the 1934 air race as well he hadn't learnt what it was like the first time I reckon he could do it easier the second time well, <laughs> I don't think he enjoyed either of them because they were the hardest work that I've read about second race he was in a fairy fox he crashed multiple times again he took forever to get to Australia but he got here he's the guy in the team that you'd never bet to be first but you'd always bet would come in somewhere in the field so tribute to Ray and that DH9 is very rare it's a very original aircraft we're lucky there's a couple more DH9s um, in the world now and one hopefully to fly in the UK in the not too distant future which is very exciting the, the first Puma engine to run they've run it a few weeks ago um, for, for, for well since the first world war with or the, the 1920s a few weeks ago as we record this uh, if a few weeks ago as we record this so yes when you listen to this there will be a whole fleet of dh9s <laughs> i'm sure um, and then we move to the, the german aircraft which uh, are very important there's the Faltz, which is a, just a great thing and it's so overlooked it's all it, you know the film and everything else it's fokker d7s it's albatrosses um, it's dr it's dr1s it's uh, it's eindeckers but actually the Faltz was an important type and great to have that represented here. What model of Feltz is that? I have no idea, Dave. I wish you hadn't asked me that. <laughs> I think it's a, a D13, but we'll um, see. And the um, the last one, and, and, and the most important in that collection, although they're all you know important in their own way, of course, is the Albatross. Uh, it's a D5. It's the only only one of two D5s left. The others in the Smithsonian collection, quite understandably and rightly. Um, and this one, as we heard um, from Jamie Croker, was very uh, comprehensively uh, conserved by the, the uh, museum staff here. But it has a fascinating story behind it. Very briefly, um, a Australian three squadron um, RE8 crew were flying over the front line, artillery spotting as we were just talking about, and uh, as is often the case they were attacked by a bunch of aircraft including this Albatross. During that combat um, the Albatross pilot was uh, a bullet went through the fuel tank, or the oil tank, I think it might have been, and into the pilot's leg. So he hadn't got any choice but to come down, and he, he brought the aircraft down, relatively attacked, landed it um, very near the front line. Um, Sandy and Hughes carried on fighting, and a, and a couple of other RE8s, and then some other aircraft, exactly like you see in the, the, the um, over-the-front film, it all sort of piled in, huge numbers more aircraft. And uh, late in the battle, Sandy and Hughes were seen by one of the other RE8 crews flying off, and they, they sort of waved to them, but they didn't get any, any acknowledgement. The aircraft just flew off uh, in, into the distance. They never returned to base. Um, the squadron got a phone call from a French unit saying that we have an RE8 crashed here. Um, in fact, the aircraft had belly landed, and I, the counts don't seem to be very clear, but it seems it wiped the undercarriage off but was otherwise intact. Um, but the two crew had been dead, and they were they were killed by a single bullet in that in that combat. Um, wow. Passed through one of them and, and into the other, and pretty much killed them immediately. I understand. Um, but the aircraft had been trimmed, and this is an interesting thing that few World War aircraft, could, World War One aircraft, could be trimmed. You certainly couldn't trim a Camel, as we saw in the film. Um, some others were more stable, like the SE5. But if you took your hands off the control, it would very quickly uh, go into a, a dive or stall, and then and then come down. But the RE8, you could trim it out, fly it, basically basically hands off and uh, when you were doing that um, it, it would fly and in this case it flew it's believed circles for about I think 80 kilometers the sign said did it Dave? I'm not sure I didn't read that. Oh right yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're not paying attention to some of the critical points here sorry folks. Um, well, we, are, yeah. we are on a whirlwind tour here. It is so. a lot to see a lot to see and remember um, but yeah they flew for a long distance and this aircraft came down so it's known as the um, as the ghost plane and it's one of the great stories. 
Yeah, well, very good. Anyway, I think we've given you a bit of a taster of um, of the uh, the War Memorial here, and uh, really, uh, all I can say to, to wrap this up is you have to come and see it for yourself. It, it, it's been one of the highlights of the whole trip for me. The museum is stunning, and, and there's so much to see, and I want to go and have another round and, and actually see a few more things again and, and watch um, Striking by Night and, and uh, over, yeah. over the Front again. You've got to watch them again, haven't you, Dave? Yeah. I've watched them lots of times. I'm, I mostly um, I'm and they run every hour too. That's right, they're on every hour. It, yeah. you, and you, you're absolutely right too, Dave. <laughs> You've got to come here to see them because you cannot see them anywhere else. Striking by night and because of the the things that are here, but also the film show. Don't go, hey, Peter, you should release this on DVD. It does not work that no, way. It, it is an environment. No, yes, yeah. simply wouldn't work. Because There's bits where they sweep the camera across that 40 yeah. plus uh, yeah. metre screen, and your your um, your eye is following it from left to right, and it's it's your left hand to your right hand across the front. It's not a flat screen, it's a curved screen. It's not 3D. I personally don't like 3D very much. Um, I think it can be a bit gimmicky, but you feel well, immersed in the story. because you've got 3D aircraft all around yeah, you. Well. <laughs> anyway, I hope we've made people go, hey, I didn't really think I'd come to Canberra to the War Memorial. Mm. I thought it was going to be a bunch of dusty aeroplanes, but now you're hopefully going, wow, that's a bit more than that. I'll also say, um, you know, if you've never thought about coming to Canberra, just reconsider because just driving around in the place it's a beautiful city it's it's completely different from what i expected because you know in new zealand when we see canberra we just see a picture of parliament buildings and that's and that's, politicians which yeah, is never a good exactly and that's the that's the least of um, what's here so yeah um i just like to yeah just before we wrap up there dave just to pick that up one of the things about the um australian war memorial and museum you can call it but you must always recognize the memorial role in, in, in the way you look at it Absolutely. is that there's a memorial space up the top and dave had a chance to have a look at that yesterday and it's uh, it's a very powerful moving place um there's a there's a, a, a an eternal flame and a pool of memory and uh, and a, a sort of rotunda there um but from there you look out the front of the museum you look across lake burley griffin one of the big uh, features of canberra and you look at old parliament house the 1920s parliament house and you look at new parliament and i can never look at that without point, picking up the point Dave made earlier. I'm not pointing any fingers, but you look from the memorial to Parliament, and I'll, I'll just leave that there. Mm. Thank you, James. Thank you, Dave. The ones I noticed were mainly Australians. Life on the stations wasn't easy for the crews. We who waited for the aircraft to return knew a terrible sense of dread each time. unsustainable. 
In the evening of 16th of December 1943, Lancaster G for George, crewed mainly by Australians, was one of 500 bombers headed for Berlin.
My memories are of young men, Aussie men, laughing, dancing, singing, and enjoying the moment. Never to be heard of again. Shot down or killed in action. They were young, handsome, and full of life. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. In the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.